Okay, hi and welcome to the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. This is episode 100, which means I've reached a milestone. It's been quite some time since I last recorded um, an episode, mainly because I've been finishing up my doctorate, which will be another topic for another time. Um, so I had to um, bring to you guys a very special episode today. Um, it, it, it's a topic that I think everyone is going to find of interest because one way or the other this topic is um, going to influence everyone whether it's uh, your parents your children uh, your athlete clients or even yourselves um, so today I've got uh, Dr. Brad Schoenfeld and Alan Aragon from the other side of the pond and I of course am Laurel Bannock and today we're going to talk about diets and body composition and specifically this comes off um, the latest, or oh, one of the latest uh, position stands by the Journal of the International Society of Sports Nutrition. Um, and the lead author was, in this case, Alan and uh, Brad and I were co-authors amongst uh, a, a motley crew of co-authors. So if, if um, uh, Alan, if you could just quickly introduce yourself and, and then Brad, if you could follow on just in case people don't know who you guys are. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you, Laurent, for inviting me and Brad to do this podcast together. It's definitely an honor. And uh, who I am, I am currently a researcher for the most part. Uh, that's been my, my main gig for the last five years. Uh, for the decade prior to that, I was in private practice as a nutritionist of sorts. And the decade prior to that, I was full-time in personal training. So uh, that's my background and who I am right now is researcher and lecturer, just basically at conferences because colleges, <clears throat> you know, they invite me on staff, but then they kind of do a little bit of digging and realize maybe that's, you know, a little too risky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Brad. Yeah. So I'm uh... I'm an author, educator, researcher, speaker, and practitioner, I guess you could say. Uh, I currently am on, uh, on staff. I'm on faculty at Lehman College in the Bronx, where I had the, um, the, the lab, the human uh, sports performance lab, as well as uh, teaching and uh, doing a lot of research, primarily in body composition areas. And I'm also uh, recently named the uh, sports nutritionist for the New Jersey Devils hockey team. Wonderful. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, obviously, I'm, I mean, the listeners know who I am, but basically, I'm a practitioner, have been for ages. Alan, a bit like you, I was a PT for 10 years. Um, that's when I was into loads of quackery and all sorts of weird stuff. But basically, it's very interesting to have a whole group of um, um, guys like you together on this, because we do have between us an interesting mixture um, of experiences and backgrounds. And I think that, that that's important because when we're talking about these sorts of things, it is ultimately not just the knowledge or, or the science, but it, it's how, um, how well it is understood and applied into practice. Um, and that's really the purpose of, of, of what my research is very much about, science to practice and translational concepts, um, particularly in exercise physiology and sports nutrition. And this topic is a, is a big one. So, Alan, um, I mean, why, you know, why, why, did, uh, why did this paper come about? Well, I mean, what led you to putting the team together and, and doing all the hard work for this? Well, I mean, what, what, what happened? <laughs> I, I definitely did some of the hard work. 
Uh, I spoke at the ISSN conference in 2015 for the first time that I spoke for that particular conference. Yeah, yeah I remember. Yeah. And uh, our, our fearless leader, um, Dr. Jose Antonio, uh, one of the co-founders of the ISSN along with Doug Kalman, uh, he invited me to write the position paper on diets and body composition. And he let me know that this is a big project and you know, I, I'm not <laughs> obligated to accept. And I basically, you know, it, it didn't take a whole lot of thought for me to decide that I want to go ahead and hunker down and take on this huge project. And so this position stand has basically been two years in the making. Um, and that's, that's pretty much how it fell into my, how it fell into my lap. Um, and I'm really happy with how it turned out. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's worth sort of getting into why this position stand is, is necessary, Brad. I mean, obviously, you know, particularly when people spend time on, uh, social media, um, there's an awful lot of people that are talking about um, body composition and, and what that means and the various ways of achieving, you know, various ways of influencing body composition, whether it's for performance or for aesthetics or physique prep. And there's a lot of opinionated ideas and concepts and some are very left-wing and right-wing and, and so on. Um, but, you know, surely with all the science that there's been over the years about nutrition and, 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 uh, and body composition and so on, I mean, why, you know, why, why do you feel this, this, this position stand is actually so important and, and why it was so necessary? Well, I, I think you kind of touched on the, the basis of it is that there is just so much misunderstanding and, and I would say, I would even go so far as to say in somewhat intentionally for, for some people, uh, the misuse of science to promote certain diets, uh, often to achieve uh, financial gain in some people, where, where some of the most, I, I think, uh, outrageous and unscientific claims have been furthered. Uh, we can, if you want, I'm happy to even <laughs> mention a few, but uh, I, I think really the, the issues here are that there's so much confusion amongst the public and uh, it's perpetrated by a confusion amongst many in the field. And uh, when I say the field, the field of nutrition and exercise, both in terms of how to counsel people. And I think it's really important that we were able to uh, qualify from a scientific basis what the, uh, the origins of uh, successful dieting comprise and, uh, and really filter out the noise from, from, the, uh, from reality. Yeah, I, I like I like the um, the description of noise. Um, I, I've had a few podcasts where we've talked about um, evidence and and how relevant that is in certain contexts. So, for example, my main area of work is with elite athletes, and you know, taking studies that are from a completely different realm, i.e., on college students or not elite athletes and then generalizing that to an elite athlete is something that I, you know, is completely misusing um, the science. But of course, it, you know, the, it's a much bigger problem, I think, um, when 
experts themselves seem to completely disagree with each other. And the noise is not just from misinterpretation by um, members of the public trying to, you know, stand on their um, their stage, you know, albeit on um, on whatever platform. Um, it, you know, the, I think a big problem is 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 people who are educated, who are um, for want of a better understanding, are experts in one form or another, are adding to this noise. It is, you know, it is an incredibly difficult thing to to get through. I mean, Alan, in researching for this, but obviously you've had decades of working, you know, in the field one way or the other, you've been exposed to this noise. And, and as practitioners, we're constantly having to interpret the data and then applying it into our own practice and then myth busting for our, our clients and so on. But when you're tackling this from a, a scholarly perspective, there is so much stuff you've got to go through. I mean, essentially how, when you started this process, how, how did you feel when you opened that door and it just crashed through onto you all this stuff? The biggest challenge about this project was deciding upon what was going to be covered and how it was going to be organized in a paper. Because something like diets and body composition, you can write a whole book, <laughs> a whole chapter uh, on each diet. You can write a whole textbook on each diet, really. I mean, if you, if you really wanted to do something that detailed and in depth. Uh, but this is a paper that ultimately um, should serve as a practical tool for academicians as well as enthusiasts and professionals in the field who um, are not necessarily uh, researchers or, or uh, you know, formally practicing scientists themselves. So that was a big challenge. But as I started to just get the paper done and go through what the various diets were, then it started to get a little bit easier and the flow started coming a little bit smoother when we look at kind of the range of, of diets in terms of macronutrition, starting out with, uh, um, you know, the low fat diets all the way to the high fat diets. And then you kind of piece things together talking about low energy diets and very low energy diets. And then the other peripheral stuff like, Oh, well, Hey, we can talk about intermittent fasting here as well. So, it is a big paper, but the biggest challenge was what exactly are we going to cover in this and how do we organize it? Uh, the decision to cover the, the major diet archetypes was pretty much a foregone type of conclusion. That, that had to be covered. But the other stuff like, uh, for example, um, adaptations to underfeeding, adaptations to overfeeding, uh, mechanisms behind how these diets work, that sort of stuff was really kind of a, a deep dive into the literature and making sure that uh, diligence was done to ensure that everything was uh, solidly supported. So, Yeah, and I mean, we'll get into this stuff in this podcast. There, there, was, there were some areas that um, I think were, were really well handled and um, are important because on discussions of diets and body composition there is obviously out there a huge focus on a very simplistic interpretation which is you know eat eat less and move more sort of idea or calories in calories out which of course 
you know one gets into in the paper but let, let's let's move um, through to some basic stuff because I think this this conversation and this paper um, is particularly um, effective when some definitions are put in place because then we you know everyone's on a on a point of understanding what we're actually talking about here so um, Brad what when when we use the word diet um, I mean, how, how should we be understanding that term? Because, again, that can be slightly misleading. Yeah, I mean, to me, and I, I think that's really a great point. Uh, to me, in general, diets are thought to be something that is a nutritional regimen that is focused on losing weight. To me, it is a nutritional regimen, period. So your diet is really how you're eating. And it can be for weight gain. It can be for weight loss. It can be for performance. It can be for really whatever your goal is. But for me, diet encompasses the, the spectrum of eating habits. Uh, in the context of what the paper was about, it was specific to body composition. So muscle gain and fat loss, or, or muscle, the uh, change in muscle and the change in fat, really. And I, I think, it, you know, to expand a bit further, um, you know, when we use the word diet, we're also referring to something that is essential for people to um, consume in terms of, of not just getting energy or, or macros. You know, in the health and fitness industry, there is a, um, a, a very uh, narrow view of this, which does not generalize to health. So, when, you know, we don't eat macros, we don't eat calories, we eat food that, it, that contains these things. And, and that is an important factor here because like particularly when I'm working with athletes although I'm um, I'm working towards a goal where body composition is, is more of a, a, a symptom as opposed to a specific uh, goal you know being being healthy is an important benefit of getting one's diet right which um, there has been addressed a number of times uh, throughout this paper but the reason why I'm mentioning that is when you hear people talk about this is they only ever talk about you know, achieving a body composition specifically through, um, you know, energy balance and that sort of thing, which of course is obviously important, but we have to consider the bigger picture, um, which often is ignored. So Alan, um, we, you know, we've defined what diet is generally, um, but your um, paper goes straight into referring to archetypes. Now, why did you do that? And, um, and I agree that it's incredibly important, but let's let's explain to the listeners why that was so necessary. Yeah, it's necessary to organize uh, our our assessment of diet in, in terms of these categories, because not not only because it's easier to organize how we would analyze them uh, objectively, but we also have to be aware that each of these diet archetypes or paradigms have their own belief system revolving around them and also their own audiences uh, who perpetuate these belief systems that are not necessarily science-based. And so this is what the public is exposed to. Um, this is what the professionals are exposed to. Um, really, uh, the dogma behind each diet archetype. So it was really important to bring these things to the forefront and just shine a light on them and, and take a look at the evidence basis behind 
the claims uh, surrounding each of these major diet types. Um, one thing that was a decision that, that we made at the outset was to not focus on particular uh, brands of diets as they're uh, commercially named, um, but rather look at the different categories of diets and how they can be defined as either uh, high fat, low fat, low carb, uh, low, low calorie, very low calorie, uh, high protein or intermittent fasting uh, and or ketogenic dieting. How can, how can we separate these diets out and take a look at them individually? And I, I just another question for you, um, Alan, because, you know, we, we, we label these things and they've got very sciencey sounding names and it's all very formal, but ultimately to people, um, this isn't just, um, a diet or a science, it can actually be a religion that, that one, you know, because when you think about belief and buy-in from a client's perspective, you know, they're, they're not thinking evidence-based and what, you know, what, what is the hierarchy of evidence and so on. For them, they're trying to make a decision about why they should follow this and subscribe to it and, and commit their, their life um, to a certain way of doing things, which ultimately is a, is a, is a type of, of religion, um, which causes some problems, doesn't it? Because that then brings about a scenario where, of course, we've got, in the same way you have religious fundamentalism and extremism, we also have the same way of approaches to diet. And a diet can be dressed up and made attractive not not based on its science but based on its scienciness to quote louise burke's concept on that um is it, it perhaps i can just get you to comment about the relevance of that because that obviously ties into why this paper was necessary is to help explain the actual facts behind these things as opposed to um you know the the, the more mystical sides of, of of these diets sure well whenever a Whenever a diet sort of develops this audience and develops this aura, then the audience and the, the believers, in quotes, of a particular diet archetype will uh, not only uh, defend their, their, their favorite diet, but they will also reject any evidence that runs counter to what the, what the, the set of... Um, the set of dietary dogma or claims are behind the diet that they hang on to and that they're emotionally attached to. And so I think that it's just really important to expose the research evidence behind each diet and especially in research that has compared these, these different diets head to head mm. with respect to their effects on body composition. And so so yeah, that's one of the things that's a problem in the industry is this sort of cherry picking or selective citing of evidence in order to defend and put one's favorite diet up on a pedestal. Yeah, well, I mean, there are strategies that everyone uses, of course, um, which I guess comes down to things like confirmation bias and catch-all Com, you know confirmation bias but um i mean there's all sorts of interesting areas that i've done research in actually about how we acquire and use knowledge and um there, there's there's sort of this concept of, of an epistemology of 
ignorance and then there's essentially ignorance of ignorance and that I find interesting because that was something I, I would have dealt with earlier in my career you know I believed in things that I didn't realize was was rubbish um, because I didn't have the education and knowledge to be able to differentiate quality from flawed science and I think it, it's the professional ignorance issue I think is interesting is, is it, it, when someone gets a little bit, bit of knowledge it becomes a dangerous thing so, for example, with, with personal trainers, um, you know, who, who mostly are very well-meaning, um, but may not necessarily understand their scope of practice, or at least their, their, their scope of understanding. I mean, I, the more I learn, and I'm sure you and Brad are the same, the less we feel we now know, because it's just the way this thing goes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There, there are some definite learning moments while I put this paper together. Uh, in fact, within the course of me putting this paper together, I became more open to the idea that having a higher fat content than typically recommended would not be detrimental to uh, resistance training performance, which is mm. what we're beginning to see in recent studies. And so uh, dietary fat recommendations that I've uh, pumped out in the past, uh, you know, I, I've I've ratcheted up the the, the upper limit of, of the, the these dietary fat recommendations, which were sort of classically uh, like a low to moderate fat model, and apparently we can include high fat in there as well, um, especially well, particularly when we're talking about resistance training performance. But I say that with kid gloves because the research is still very new. Um, could potentially be some one-hit wonders out of uh, a single lab that, that we're, we're going to be seeing. Um, so, yeah, everything, as you know, in science and research, that everything's always going to be tentative because we have to keep an open mind to the new findings. Yeah, I think, well, I, I remember I, I'm very lucky to have had quite a few lectures by Professor Kevin Tipton, and um, one of the things he really drove home that always really sticks with me is, is you know, is 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 to be skeptical, but also open-minded. Um, and I think it's very easy to become one or the other, but not necessarily both. Um, and I think if you manage to be skeptical and open-minded, it allows you to travel with care along this information pathway with maybe a bit more uh, precision and uh, intelligence, perhaps. Um, Brad, so we're using the word body composition. So two things there. What, what does that term actually mean? And then how do we actually assess body composition? So in, in very broad terms, body composition would be percent fat versus percent fat-free mass. Or, or, and you could even qualify it further rather than going percentages, but total amount of fat-free mass versus total amount of uh, fat. And what was the second question of that? I'm sorry. Well, just so, so, so you... you You've described what body composition is, but how do we actually measure it? It's not, you know, we, we, we can look at people and we can guess things, but, you know, yeah. really, you know, let's get deeper. The, the, you know, how do we actually assess? Well, the, really the only way to, act, to know for sure when we talk about fully accurate assessment would be an autopsy, and I don't think most people are volunteering for that. So uh, the next level would be an estimate of body comp, which... There are a variety of tools that can be used, anything from underwater weighing uh, to BOD pod, which is air displacement plethysmography. It's kind of a variant of uh, underwater weighing, bioelectrical impedance, DEXA, 
uh, there's ultrasound now can be used to do a body comp test. And all of them have uh, some strengths and limitations. Um, many of them, like a, a underwater weighing bod pot or what are called two component models, where they're just giving you fat-free mass versus fat mass. Something like DEXA is a three component model because you're able to get uh, bone in there. So you, basically it will then uh, take the fat-free mass and start to look at the components of that. Uh, bioelectrical impedance has ways to uh, to estimate water weight within there, and, and there are figures, there are formulas you can use to actually look at the skeletal muscle mass and the accuracy. Again, that and by the way, skin folds are the other. That's kind of the tried and true that everyone knows. A very easy, non uh, non invasive, and it doesn't you know cost very little to carry it out. All of these modalities are okay for estimating, but their um, error of measurement is. is you know, can be fairly wide, depending upon who you're measuring, what population. Um, certainly for obese and for very lean people, they're, they're, uh, they magnify the errors in many cases. So uh, we use these as tools uh, on a group level. They're very, very good in terms of like for research studies uh, where we're uh, measuring a group of subjects and then measuring another group of subjects and trying to determine on average the, the changes. Uh, they can be very useful tools on an individual basis. The errors in measurement make them somewhat less effective, but uh, certainly they're better than just eyeing it in the mirror. Yeah, I, again, I, I mean, I'm fortunate. I've got to a point now where I have my own lab in my private practice, and I've got lots of toys and gadgets. In fact, today I had um, the people that supplied me with my metabolic cart um, um, a few years ago now, around to calibrate the system and service it. And that was a pretty phenomenal experience. I, my assistant was here when it last happened. And we're talking a lot of components, um, all of which can influence the data. And of course, you're sitting there thinking, this kit is accurate. You turn it on, you do your test, you know, you've got all your metabolic data, boom. But actually, there are all sorts of things that can influence the the data um, all the way through to how old the mask is, the uh, sample lines, the filters, uh, the ambient temperature. I may have calibrated this morning, but if I did the test this afternoon, that can in introduce fairly significant errors. Um, for example, it was sunny this morning, but it's raining this afternoon. That can be significant. Um, and then uh, even with, um, uh, we have all sorts of kit for measuring body composition, but one of the things, obviously, we have is skinfold calipers and a good set of Harpenden calipers. I've got five sets. We also have those calibrated. You wouldn't believe the amount of issues that there can be with calipers. Um, there's all sorts of moving parts, shall we say, on a set of calipers, and um, they can adjust over time. The, um, you know, the springs, uh, the dials, all sorts of stuff, and then that's without considering technique of pinch, location i subscribe and use the isaac method um and even that's pretty pretty difficult the, the reason why i'm mentioning all this is because we have this belief in gold standards or whatever testing method um whether it's dexa or mri or bia or or skin folds but i think what's clear from what you said and what i'm mentioning here is this is a tool that 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 gives you a clue it may be a more informed clue than other methods but um, I think it's important to talk about this stuff because I've seen people, as I'm sure you guys have, who 
you know, doing body comps in a gym with a pair of plastic calipers. They've got absolutely no idea really about technique and anatomy and they're running off, you know, their numbers off all of that. And of course, I, I, when I do metabolic testing, I'm doing an RMR on a, an athlete, for example, and it's a fair bit different than what the estimate would be. Sure, my athlete's a bit of an outlier, but the point though is, is that the, there's, a, there's a difference between the reality and what the tool will estimate. And depending on how we run with that information can heavily influence the recommendations that ultimately lead to successful or unsuccessful outcomes with, with body composition. Um, from a scientist's perspective, where you're trying to control variables, so on and so forth, uh, you know, how should the consumer, um, you know, how much concern should they have over this? And how, how, when it comes to testing body comp, what do you feel is the most reliable way, Brad, to um, arrive at something that's repeatable, I think is the important thing here. Yeah, so now we're talking on an individual level. Like I said, from a research standpoint, when you're dealing with groups, the overall error is minimized, and especially when we're looking at changes over time, when you're looking to measure changes rather than exactly what your body fat is. And I think to me, that's the more important thing anyway, is not your whether you're 22% or 24%. That error to me, for the vast majority of people, is meaningless. Uh, what's more important if you're looking to track changes over time in terms of, uh, and, and now we'd be looking at the reliability of the unit would be a more important uh, measure here. And, and really that would be for the majority of people, you know, am I losing weight? Am I gaining weight? And, and where is that weight coming from? Is it coming from fat or muscle or co combinations of such? Uh, you know, as far as the um, what to uh, modality to use, Interestingly, a skin fold can be an extremely good tool to use, and you kind of hit it on the head, if you're a skilled practitioner. I mean, I've done thousands over the years of skin fold analyses, and I've got to be quite proficient at it. Uh, I teach my students, you know, in an exercise science class, we're going to have, you know, you're limited to the number of, of things you can do in when you're doing exercise testing and prescription. So they might have, by the time they're a graduate, they might have done it 10, 20 times. Uh, would they be an expert? And they're going to go into a gym. And, and by the way, like you said, a lot of the people in the gym never even had that training uh, for it. So you need to do it repet uh, repeatedly over time. Uh, so really that's going to be a much more, something like that is much more skill dependent. Whereas something like a bod pod or DEXA, they're going to be more dependent on the actual unit and, and other factors that you talked about. And, you know, when we talk about that, number one, most people are limited in their ability to get to, to a lot of these, uh, use these technologies. Uh, we have in, in our lab a bioelectrical impedance, a high-level one, an in-body. It's quite expensive. It's almost $20,000. Uh, but it, it's very reliable, meaning that I can run repeated measurements over time, and it will show so let's say i did a, a test today and i did it tomorrow and i did it the next day the subjects would have very similar uh body fat body composition uh analyses within those three days but whether they are highly correlated to their actual fat-free mass and fat mass I, I can't really say and we've done dexa uh analyses with them and on an individual basis there's quite a bit of variance so and, and by the way I, i'd also add even with dexa uh, it's supposed to be with the gold standard in many cases. Some people would argue on the waterway. But uh, I, I recently uh, know, knew a girl who had DEXA testing done, 
And she told me that she was 29% body fat, I believe. And I looked at her and I, I mean, you can, I've, um, I've been a judge at bodybuilding shows. I mean, I can look at people. I can't tell you whether they're 22 or 24. I know if someone's 29 or they're 19. And this, this girl was in nowhere, nowhere near 29% body fat. And I uh, did her, I had her come into my lab and we did a bioelectrical impedance and she was 19. Uh, which and whether that was exact. So my point is, is that looking at the exact number is very difficult. Uh, the estimates will be widely varied, and I think uh, one of the best ways is the simple uh, skin fold. If you get someone who is very yeah. proficient. Yeah, I think. Well, I think the danger with a lot of these things is we use the word percentage as an output, and we assume that a percentage body fat from DEXA is the same thing as a percentage body fat. Right skin folds and um that that is definitely not not the case uh, um alan from a um a translation of the science to practice you know the, how we actually use this stuff in a in a in a nutrition consulting scenario i mean you you're looking at all this research and you're trying to translate this into something that's meaningful to the reader to, to help guide or inform their their practice I mean, bearing in mind that there are so many different methods for testing body composition and there's so, so much potential for error. I mean, that has to have been a serious consideration in your selection criteria for, for what actually constitutes meaningful um, data to, to crunch for this paper, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the science of estimating body composition is really complex, really muddy. There's a lot of different methods as we discussed. Um, the important thing to reiterate is that although some of these methods might be more precise, might be more comprehensive, what really counts is what the practitioner can access and use on the client base um, on a consistent basis. Mm. And that's going to be different with every facility. Some people don't have access to the sophisticated lab tools that you and Brad have, for example. Um, a lot of people would have a tough time seeking out uh, a DEXA scan, you know, for economic and or even geographic uh, reasons. So then in, in cases like that, then you have to rely on the much simpler and much cheaper methods, which can definitely be a, a viable tool in private practice as long as things are done consistently. And that's really what it kind of boils down to with assessing or more accurately, <laughs> guessing, <laughs> estimating what body composition might be. And of course, the important part being able to track change over time in the individual. Yeah. So I guess what we take home from that is it's not so much how accurate the number is, it's how consistent it is and how reliable that consistency is. Cause then we can, we can use that to judge the successes or failures of our interventions more accurately, can't we? Right. And you know, that I've made a conscious decision to not publish body fat percent standards mm. in the position paper. This was something that I thought over quite a bit. And I could just picture regular folks, uh, academic folks, athletes, enthusiasts, every, and everybody in between reading those standards and living and dying by those standards in terms of whether they love themselves, hate themselves, 
uh, or anywhere in between. And so I'm thinking, why would I put the emphasis on that or shine a light on that when it really is a subjective thing? And body composition measurement really isn't body composition measurement, it's body composition estimation. And you, you may get 20% with one method, you may get 12% with another method. I've seen huge spreads and differences, just like what Brad mentioned, across different methods. And it really messes with people's minds. It really sort of gets them into a bad place psychologically if they're not at this magic number that they've been reaching for. Uh, I tend to default to, okay, well, you're either where you want to be or you ain't there yet. <laughs> those are two, <laughs> those are the two things. So if you're not there yet, well, then keep going to it within reason. But yeah, I, I, it really bothers me how a lot of people hang on to a magic body fat percent number that they think they need to see on a given device in order to feel like they've reached their goals. And I think that's totally missing the point. Yeah, I mean, I've seen that in professional sport where we're assessing an entire squad of players and, and we will adopt, for example, uh, I've seen this at two rugby clubs I've worked at where um, um, the, uh, the sports science team will have, for example, a traffic light system based on body fat percentages. And if a player is, you know, yellow, um, you know, they'll be encouraged to do fat burning exercises on top of their training. There might be some influences on their diet. If it's red, you know, we'll totally hit their diet and so on and so forth. But, it, you know, um, in sports like rugby, for example, sometimes a player is going to play better, you know, if they're slightly fatter. Um, if I can even use that word, and you get them super lean, they just don't play so well because of the what it took to get them lean has impacts that are negative to their uh, metabolism and negative to their psychological well-being. But also, um, in an impact sport, we've got very large guys. And remember, over here, we don't wear helmets and pads. <laughs> uh, mm. So when you've got really big guys running at each other, that's some pretty serious stuff. So you know, anyway, there's some some interesting stuff about being too literal with the with the knowledge. So that's why I like the term evidence informed as opposed to evidence based, um, uh, just from a, a basic conceptual understanding of what that statement actually means. Mm. Um, but I, what we just talked about in terms of um, body composition as a definition and testing methodologies, I did a whole podcast with Sean Arendt on that. So I'd like to recommend people go back and listen to that. So let's just move into the archetypes. Now, what I don't want to do is just go through stuff that folks can read by reading the paper. What I thought we could do um, is just just sort of go into a couple of key concepts that that you um, that you found when looking at these different diet archetypes. You know, what what really were the main features that really stood out um, from looking at all these different archetypes? What what is the most poignant thing that we should be bearing in mind? Okay, the biggest thing that stood out to me was a spectacular lack of difference in effect on body composition, particularly in, in untrained subjects, and even trained subjects to a degree, when you match protein and calories between the diets being compared. So there is this really broad range of carbohydrate and fat proportion 
within the diet that will have just similar effects. And uh, I call it a, a wide margin of it doesn't matter. <laughs> and people really, that, that really bothers people at a very basic and fundamental human nature level because nobody wants to hear that, gosh, all these diets work similarly. <laughs> the people want to hear, okay, well, which one of these diets do I need to get on? Let's simplify things here for our, our uh, primate brains here, and let's, let's just give me the magic bullet. And there really isn't one. So then the next challenge becomes, well, how do we figure out what the person wants and how, how do we figure out what the person prefers, what the individual will stick to? Uh, because that's really the name of the game. I saw it as really a positive thing that there was this spectacular lack of differences between effects of the diets that match protein and calories. I saw that as a great thing because it's a very positive thing for individualizing programs as a practitioner. And it also blows away all this dogma that there's a single diet that is su superiorly effective to all the rest, mm. uh, which a lot of people insist on believing. Uh, that like you said, they, they latch onto it like a religion and then they preach instead of uh, present the evidence. So that's, that's what really stuck out to me was that, wow, there's just such a huge range in terms of carbohydrate and fat proportion that'll work similarly for body composition. And this invalidates a lot of the claims that are hormonally based. Uh, of course, with the carbon fat model uh, would, be, would be the, the insulin, the insulin uh, model of uh, carbohydrate insulin model of obesity, which has been parroted about through various media outlets for the last, gosh, almost running whenever Gary Taubes put his book out. <laughs> uh, I think that people need to let go of this oversimplistic idea that you, we need to keep an eye on a single hormone because that's what dictates fat gain and fat loss, when in fact we've pretty much seen the opposite of that. Uh, one of the one of the the researchers that I, I cited a few times uh, in the paper is Kevin Hall, who's done some of the most diligent work comparing the effects of varying carbohydrate and fat proportion between diets. Uh, I would I would venture to say that he's done the most diligent work in that area, and one of the things that researchers in general have failed to do prior to Kevin's analyses, um, and of course there are other guys who did important work in the area like Sonnen and colleagues in 2012-ish, I believe. Um, the main thing that people neglected to do was match protein and calories when they're comparing high carb and low carb diets. And once that was done, and once all of the relevant studies in that area have been collected and meta-analyzed, we see a big old donut, <laughs> a big old zip zero nada uh, in terms of meaningful differences on body composition between uh, varying carbon fat proportions. Yeah, I, think, I mean, I, you know, I think it's important that we do recognize that there is more than one way to achieve a goal. And, and I think, and you, you've been promoting this concept for a long time as is other people, but you know, we do need to bear in mind the individual needs and preferences um, because you know, it's whatever you can stick to consistently. That's really the main, you know, factor that, that is likely to yield a positive result. 
Um, and I think, you know, as I said, I, I researched some of this stuff in terms of knowledge and how we use knowledge. And there is an interesting concept where obviously in, in physics, there's this idea of, you know, um, um, uh, the path of least resistance, essentially. But that also goes with thought processes and how we tackle knowledge. And um, essentially, depending on your level of knowledge and, and your level of uh, your threshold for, um, uh, for evidence and your ability to understand and interpret evidence, you will follow that, that path of least resistance to get you to that point where you go, yep, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tolerate that. And that's why I think um, it's important for papers like this, for example, because you've got yourself and obviously everyone that contributed to help, help with this paper is an opportunity for people to get help in that translation of that knowledge um, and help sort of tease out the, the, you know, the main areas that need some focus, which is why we're talking about this now. And so, for example... Um, you've described the various diet archetypes which folks can read about. We don't need to get too much into that. And, you know, you differentiate low-carb diets, uh, ketogenic diets, which is another really, that's a, another huge example of nutritional fundamentalism or nutritional extremism. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, I think what comes out of that, though, is uh, protein does seem to hold a special place in this, though, doesn't it? I mean, why... Why, um, in fact, let's go, let's go over to Brad for, for this one. Brad, why, of all the, of all the different macronutrients there, why, why is, is protein the common thread in this? I, I think there's several reasons. I mean, mechanistically, it's, uh, the, we can make some spec, we can draw some speculation uh, based on our, our knowledge of, of uh, science. Uh, but, you know, knowing the exact reason still is somewhat equivocal. I'd say several things. Number one, Protein is used to build tissue, so if there's no other carbohydrates and uh, lean tissue. Carbohydrates and, um, and fats do not directly build lean tissue for the most part. And, uh, I mean, they can contribute with – when protein is there, to an extent, carbohydrates may help to contribute to that uh, building. But anyway, protein uh, it has, is the only nitrogenous-containing uh, nutrient, and as such, it builds muscle tissue and other, other tissues. Uh, the, the constituent amino acids are used to build these tissues. So if, if you can use that nutrient to build tissue, then by nature, it's not going to be used to store fat. So that's number one. Number two, protein in itself has satiety-inducing effects. And uh, to some extent, fat does as well. But protein has uh, it, there's several mechanisms that are thought to occur. And one of the primary ones is a, um, it increases CCK, which is a hormone that has satiety-inducing effects. And it's been shown over and over that when you consume higher protein, you eat less food. And as Alan had touched on, the overall energy balance is ultimately what drives weight gain, weight loss. Um, there is <clears throat> some spec, well, first of all, protein also has the highest thermic effect, uh, which is another really big factor. So every time you eat during the digestive process, your body burns off uh, some of the nutrients that are, are utilized. The protein, the thermic effect of protein is somewhere between 25 to 30% of total calories, where that of carbohydrates has been estimated to be around 6 to 8% and fat 2 to 3%. So you're just the thermic effect alone will mean that a lot of what you're eating is not stored. Uh, and there is some speculation, and I actually have been involved in a study uh, with a colleague of mine, Bill Campbell, 
which we hope to get uh, in review shortly. But uh, not only does protein, um, even in when you're eating more calories, protein seems to, uh, higher calories, in just protein, protein seems to have greater effects on fat loss. And this was, by the way, also shown by uh, Joey Antonio's lab, too, in, in several studies. And we also can speculate, although I've not seen specific uh, direct evidence of this, that perhaps it can alter NEAT, non-exercise activity thermogenesis, to a greater degree, whereby, uh, and that perhaps has to do with its ability to build lean tissue. Uh, so there's some speculation that it might drive greater uh, increases in NEAT, while, or at least attenuate decreases in NEAT uh, that are seen with uh, low, uh, low energy diets. So all of these factors, we're not sure as to the exact mix and how they enter in, but it, it, one thing is patently clear that if you eat higher protein, uh, it will not tend to be stored as fat, as, as certainly as readily. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it's fascinating. And I, I, the area that I'm really starting to get interested in, um, akin to how we're realizing how wondrously plast, you know, the, the, the plasticity of muscle tissue is just awesome. But also, it's the um, the flexibility of metabolism and the ability of it to adapt its mechanisms to a variety of, of environmental stimuli and factors and so on. Alan, um, th this area, I think, is particularly key to understanding why looking at this simplistically, when I talk about, you know, we, we narrow things down as this path of least resistance so of course we just end up with this static concept of calories in and calories out but it doesn't allow for um, the chaotic variables that we live in the real world um, and of course the way the body has adapted to that is truly miraculous and we're starting to learn in fact only um, a few weeks ago a, a really big paper came out um, relative to metabolic flexibility and, and performance but this is an area that I, I find really interesting but perhaps Alan you could maybe delve just a bit into this I mean I have done podcasts on these topics with researchers specifically on those topics but as it relates to body composition and why we shouldn't just look at things from a static perspective this 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 adaptability of, of the metabolism is a factor that we have to consider perhaps. Sure. The body will fight you on both goals of either weight gain or weight loss, and it'll fight you harder on weight loss just because of, uh, from a, from an evolutionary perspective or, or hypothesis. And so there are various mechanisms involved with, uh, the body, um, essentially resisting weight loss or fat loss. Um, uh, what the, probably the, the biggest one is a behavioral response to dieting. And this is probably something that always goes under the radar um, and, and is really sort of an overlooked factor is noncompliance, uh, inconsistency with compliance, binging, and that sort of thing. Um, I, I remember debating Gary Taubes in, in, in England a couple of years back, and he was making the claim that our bodies are so tightly regulated in terms of, of body weight that you, when you look at the total amount of weight gained um, in the typical adult over, over several years or over their adult lives, uh, it's, it comes down to like a single 
um, spoonful of food above maintenance requirements uh, every day that leads to that. First of all, he's, he's wrong about that because fat is gained in significant chunks during the holiday period. Uh, and it's not this minuscule linear gain that we just can't control. That is not a research-based claim. Uh, looking at the research, indeed, we gain it in chunks at certain points in the year when we stuff our pie holes. So um, that's, that's one thing that, that I want to um, just illuminate is the non-compliance factor or the compliance inconsistency factor. Another thing that I want to illuminate is the misreporting factor. So uh, consistently in the research, you have misreporting, you have underreporting of calories. And this is another thing that gets overlooked. Um, it's really common for subjects to underreport calories and they do it more severely uh, in the obese population. And in terms of uh, actual numbers there, it's been seen that roughly a thousand calories plus of underreporting goes on. That's common. There's roughly 250-ish of overreporting physical activity. So when you combine those numbers, you get some really deal-breaking uh, scenarios there for um, weight loss or fat loss. Um, Another thing, like there, there's different things that, that the body will fight you on with weight loss. One of them will be the loss of uh, resting metabolic rate that comes with weight loss, and certainly that comes with uh, the loss of lean body mass. Um, and then there's the phenomenon of adaptive thermogenesis where we don't exactly know how to account for a uh, particular loss and resting energy expenditure that count that cannot be accounted for by losses in metabolic tissue. So we're hypothesizing a lot around what might cause this sort of uh, metabolic slowing that we can't quite put a finger on, so we call it adaptive thermogenesis. But the important thing to remember about adaptive thermogenesis is it consistently in the literature has boiled down to a 10 to 15% drop that we have a difficult time accounting for with, with metabolically active tissue losses. So it's not this incredible amount, but it can be viewed as a significant amount in certain contexts, mm -hmm. but it is roughly 10 to 15%. Uh, it's not like 15 to, or, or rather it's not like 50 to 100% where suddenly your diet came to a halt no matter how much you starve yourself. That's just not the scenario. And furthermore, when you look at scenarios in the literature that have induced these significant metabolic slowings, you see a lack of attention paid to protocol. You see a lack of attention paid to macronutrition, optimizing protein intake. You see an absence of resistance training. And it's almost a, a, a well, duh, of course. Why don't we put the perfect storm together to cause metabolic slowing? And that's what they do in the literature. So, of course, that's going to happen. It's not surprising at all. Uh, where, where this literature gets misinterpreted is the crossover into practice. Uh, you have people worrying about um, metabolic slowing despite uh, consuming reasonable macronutrient distributions and losing reasonable rates of body fat uh, over time. And this just has not been seen 
in the literature, with the exception of these scenarios where we forcibly put people into these compromised positions. Yeah, I, I mean, so there's the, the listeners, um, there's a few podcasts I've done in the not too distant past with um, Professor Dylan Thompson, um, Dr. James Betts, and Dr. Javier Gonzalez. They're all from Bath University uh, here in the UK, um, where we talked about meat and, um, you know, metabolic adaptation. Um, absolutely fascinating stuff. Um, if people want to understand a bit more of the mechanistic stuff in the background. But the fact is, is this is such a, a big issue um, because it complicates matters in terms of addressing the whole calories in, calories in, calories out. And the reason why I'm mentioning this is because from a pr practitioner's perspective, that's what I am, that's what a lot of listeners are, those a lot of researchers listen to this, is they're sitting there with their, their spreadsheets or their... Um, you know, their, uh, their, their, their diet plan calculator or whatever, and they're just tapping in some numbers here and there and then pumping out some macros, and they're right, here you go, this is, this is your diet, and if it doesn't work, it's, you know, it's not my fault, it's because you didn't follow the advice properly. I mean, essentially, why, why is that a, a, you know, a difficult way of achieving a result, you think? I mean, why, you know, why is that possibly not the best way of approaching this? Well, it's because people are people, you know, unfortunately, we're not lab rats who can be quarantined and force fed and, and watched 24 hours a day. Um, I think that with dietary approaches, you some people will take very well to an assignment of, of grams of carbohydrate, protein, fat and calories, whereas other people may click better with more qualitative and more habits-based changes where as you know some some folks will gladly whip out a scale and weigh everything and measure everything with other folks it'll just they'll be able to do that for as long as they can endure hating it and then they'll just it, the, the whole operation will be sabotaged because it doesn't click with their personality and their, their modus operandi. So with certain people, it's going to have to be more qualitative changes. Whereas with other folks, quantitative and highly precise tracking, they love it. And the trick is in finding out what the individual prefers and can work best with instead of just saying, okay, this is the one method we're going to use and assign for everybody. And that's just how it's going to go because what's going to happen is Half the people are going to do great on it, and the other half are not going to comply in the long term. Yeah, and I'm, I'm pleased you used the word qualitative because there is a movement now in the sports science literature. I mean, it's, when I say a movement, it's, it's almost only just started really to gain momentum, where traditionally a lot of sport and exercise science is, is purely quantitative-based. You know, it's just science, 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 numbers, 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 let's generalize. But, of course, humans are humans. That's a perfect way of saying it. We live in an environment that has so many qualitative variables um, that essentially does make or break this, um, which is important that, that we understand. I mean, there are, you know, you think of the medical doctors who sit there and tell their patient, just, just you know, eat less and move more. That's such a flawed process. But on the same level, you've got your nutritionist or PT who's saying, right, I've worked out how many calories you need to eat. That's it. That's going to work. 
Um, you know, I think I think what this this paper does is explores lots of the science, but also I think it's fair to say that there, there's more that we don't know than that we know. But the human element is such an important part of it, right? Yeah, and Alan, uh, um, Alan and uh, Lauren, I wanted to uh, feed on that because yeah. it's such an important point that when we look at studies, studies basically are providing averages. Mm. So you're going to see what the average weight gain or, or body fat composition. Uh, weight loss gain is in that in a given group, not in individuals. If you actually look at any of these studies, there's going to be fairly wide um, differences in how individuals respond. And some of them, of course, can be depending on how it's the study is carried out. If you're looking at general studies, Alan pointed out about just reporting differences uh, entering in. But even in tightly controlled metabolic ward studies, there's fairly robust standard deviation differences. And what that really tells you is, is that Energy balance is immutable. So calories, when you say calories in, calories that are energy in and energy out will dictate it. But certainly you have to be open to the possibility that different nutrients, different uh, uh, eating styles, et cetera, will affect different people differently and alter that energy balance in some way, either through neat regulation, through, again, we talked about thermic effect of food. There can be differences in how people respond thermically. Uh, to different nutrients, even studies that have looked at that will have standard deviation. So when we talk about protein having a 25% TEF, there's a spectrum of that on given individuals in terms of how their bodies respond. And what that's telling you is, is that people need to take these types of, of position stands as a guideline and then customize them to their own needs, abilities, and responses. And uh, look, I, I think the other point that was well made earlier, too, was that adherence is the most important thing. Yeah. So we can look at genomics. We can prescribe the ideal diet for someone. If that involves cutting out all carbs and they, this is going to be the diet for you, and that person says, you know what, I want to eat carbs, and I, can't, I cannot survive on a diet that doesn't have that, well, it, then it doesn't matter. So uh, ultimately, I think these are things that people need to understand that when we provide a position stand like this, it's taking the science it's uh, hopefully we, we try to give people uh, or give readers an understanding of how the nuances of these diets so uh, come into play. But ultimately, they're, they're guidelines and people need to then exactly. thus customize them to their own responses. Yeah, no, exactly. I want to I add to that, if I may. Uh, the concept of calories in, calories out is, like Brad said, it, it is immutable. And they're is a very vociferous group of folks who are denying that that calories matter or calorie balance is even a thing and okay it's not about calories it's all about hormones and what they do is they paint this false dichotomy right. when the reality of the matter is hormones influence energy balance uh, arguably primarily by uh, affecting eating behavior and hunger levels and appetite so hormones absolutely come into play, um, but it indeed circles right back to energy balance because if um, hunger hormone levels are up, you're going to eat more. Um, so that's how hormones come into play other than direct effects on thermogenesis and such. So uh, I, I want to point out that it's not an either or situation. You cannot separate hormones from energy balance. Um, however, uh, it needs to be pointed out that you can basically puppeteer hormone levels depending on what energy balance you want to maintain. So, um, so if you want to spike up hunger hormones, well, 
just dip into a negative energy balance. If you want to suppress them, then just go on a dirty bulk permanently. So, um, and I'm saying that facetiously. I know some people take my stuff literally all the time. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I want to make that part clear that it, eat less, move more is technically what people need to do in order to lose body weight or body fat. So that's technically correct. But the challenge is in making sure that it's the right kind of weight loss, uh, mostly fat. And of course, the other challenge is in making sure that their program is sustainable over the long term so that it's not a scenario where they just yo-yo back up. Uh, and there are a lot of variables involved with programming that correctly. Um, so, so yes, it still does boil down to energy balance, whether or not you want to deny that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, I mean, the way I'm looking at this is this boils down to the conversation that's being had and the appropriateness of the knowledge, um, you know, with a lack of context. And by that, I mean, it's a reductionistic approach because it all matters as you're saying it, mm. it's like saying what's more important the front or rear wheel of your bicycle well they're both important idiot <laughs> so, <laughs> so i think i think that's it it's just that's what i meant before about the path of least resistance we reduce things to a level that we feel more comfortable talking about and 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 a lot of younger um fitness and nutrition professionals you know they like to get into sciencey speak and stuff and and that's where they're comfortable throwing out these sciencey terms but in reality you know the more we travel down this path not only do we realize that scientists publish means it isn't necessarily the individual situation um the you know the testing equipment um you know was it fit for purpose was it calibrated right there's so much stuff that actually influences the confidence that we really should have or not have in this and how we apply that um which i think has been well addressed in in this paper um i, I there's definitely something we should quickly discuss which isn't specifically um the focus of the paper but since brad is with us and it's highly relevant um, just quickly, Brad, we, we can't talk about diets and, com and body composition um, after I've talked about front wheel and rear wheel being more important than the other without saying um, the role and relevance of exercise to this conversation. What, what, what role um, does that have here? Um, you know, some people talk about, oh, you can do it for your diet, you can do it for exercise. You know, is, is that a conversation that, that should or could be had or, you know, what's what's... Let's, what's the role for, for exercise here, Brad? Yeah, well, I don't think we have another uh, hour or two to, uh, to delve into this, but I mean, in the kind of the short course, I'd say a couple things. Number one, and you asked Alan what was some of the revelations that he had. One of the real interesting things to me was seeing how, and it's not that it, I, I guess I knew this, but it just kind of uh, brought it home, was how few studies in the literature actually have looked at exercising populations when they're looking at dietary approaches. Uh, and, and, of course, the reason for that would be that the funding for studies comes through clinical type of uh, issues, and obese subjects are going to be the primary people studied, not your fit people who are looking to add an extra inch on their biceps and a couple inch on their pecs. Uh, so with that said, um, a couple of things here. Uh, from a fat loss standpoint, uh, nutrition rules. Uh, fat, exercise would be a secondary uh, way 
to go about helping to lose some body fat. It's kind of an adjunct, but unless you're going to commit hours and hours, like, yeah, Biggest Loser can do that because they're putting people through six, eight-hour workouts every day, you know, we're putting them in the fields. But if you're not going to commit huge amounts of time to exercise, it's going to be modest. Um, to really do something, you'd have to do every day of the week for an hour plus a day and vast majority of aerobic exercise. Uh, resistance training will have other effects uh, as well, but they're less on body fat loss. Uh, but where exercise, of course, comes into play is on the other side of the equation, the lean mass gains. Uh, not only does exercise prevent uh, muscle loss during uh, resistance training, but it actually can enhance uh, the accretion of, of lean muscle, uh, of lean tissue during exercise, uh, during a caloric deficit. And that's really important. A lot of people think, well, you can't even build muscle while you're in a deficit. That is not true. And uh, the extent to which you can will depend upon your primarily two factors, the training level, how the experience that you have, whereas newbies are going to gain, have a much better potential to recomp, to gain muscle as they're losing fat, and also the amount of fat that you have to lose. So people who are very lean, it's going to be real difficult for them to lose additional fat while gaining muscle. But even without uh, recomping and gaining muscle, the loss of lean tissue is a really serious issue. And for those who are not exercising and specifically resistance training, anywhere from 25% to a third of the weight that is lost during uh, a caloric deficit will come from lean tissue. And obviously that has negative effects on, uh, on your appearance, on, to some extent on your metabolism, uh, and, and certainly on your functional capacity. So uh, the, the strategy, any, um, any weight loss, weight maintenance strategy must include exercise. And uh, it, it is particularly important, like I said, from the lean tissue standpoint. So, Alan, when someone says you can't outrun a bad diet, how do you like to respond to that? <laughs> well, it's pretty easy, the math there. You know, any given hour of exercise, depending on how intense or, or, or lackadaisical it's going to be, is going to run you anywhere from like the low end 200-ish to the high end, you can possibly hit a thousand. Um, <laughs> think of the foods that run 200 to a thousand and think of how easy it would be to obliterate, let's say, your targeted uh, 3,500 calorie deficit by the end of the week. How, think of how easy it, it would be to obliterate that deficit in, you know, a couple days on the weekend, let alone um, you know, a couple meals that, that, that you can do that. So that's kind of the, the, the way that I would put that. Something that I, I want to mention that, that I didn't mention was uh, I actually read on a forum a discussion. It was a keto forum. Um, I was just digging around what, what people were saying about the position paper on the internet. And thankfully, almost everybody loves it. I, I've heard just overwhelmingly positive and non-dissenting feedback about it. Well, how, how are you really going to dissent on it? It's, it's pretty much a collation of, of, of the state of the evidence. You know, if you want to want to rip on that, then you're saying, okay, well, the evidence is wrong. <laughs> um, but in this particular conversation in this keto forum, people were saying, yeah, yeah, well, he still goes back to, to Kiko on it. And they, they're, you know, they love their protein and everybody seems to be sponsored by a protein company. I got a good laugh out of that because for one thing, 
the reason, one of the reasons keto works is because of its positive effects on energy balance through a regulation of hunger. So uh, there, there is an emerging body of literature showing that, in, in quotes, uh, nutritional ketosis may be in an independently satiating effect from, uh, from the protein element, from the higher protein element. And we can't make strong claims about this because there's, there's really not enough research in this area to uh, be confident in that. Um, however, there's a possibility that uh, either ketosis or something else going on <laughs> when you cut out carbs and jack up fat uh, that um, reduces hunger, increases satiety levels. And what happens when people go on ketogenic diets is a spontaneous reduction in total caloric intake. So you are not losing fat by the magic of keto. You are losing fat by the magic of keto leading you to eat less calories. So... Um, yeah, I, I just wanted to make sure I got that in for, yeah, for no, the keto for the keto crowd. Yeah, I mean, like the, the way I I tend to approach these things is, you know, lots of things do things. You've just got to ask yourself, I can do this, but should I? You know, what are the consequences of this? So, for example, with the keto thing, yeah, you can do it. Yeah, you might. You it might for you be a better way of losing weight. It might increase fat oxidation, and you're going to become more metabolically efficient, and that's absolutely brilliant. But not at the expense of carbohydrate oxidation, which might be more important for someone who actually wants to win the race. For example, from a yes. perspective, I think that's just it. It's this, you know, it's this, this reductionistic thing that is just prevalent in health, fitness, and sports science, and we're just blasted with papers and papers and papers. And that's why I love a position stand. You know, the, the ISSN has, has put out a lot of these over the years. ACSM also has some, some good position stands. And I know that there's a bunch of new ones um, about to come out, which will be some new podcasts, I'm hoping. Um, but we'll, 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 um, we'll get into those another time. But for folks that want to get into what we've been talking about in a lot more detail because we're, we're out of time here now um is please read the position stand i will link to it on the um podcast page on our website the guru performance institute um it's a great read um the purpose of this podcast is not to replace the paper so please don't be lazy and go well i listen to the podcast no no read the paper print it off keep it on your desk it is an extremely important document i think um, and by the way, Ron, I, I do want to also give a big shout out to Alan because he yeah. really was the a lot of times position papers are you're going to have much more uh, collaboration. Alan was the driving force in this paper. We all helped out uh, to some extent, but uh, really it was just a yeoman's job by him, and uh, just couldn't be more impressed with the the job that he did. And it, well, the, the rest uh, of us just corrected his spelling mistakes. <laughs> Making sure those commas were in place. Yeah, <laughs> I appreciate that, Brad. So, um, uh, Brad and Alan. So, Alan, tell us how we can uh, find out more about you, your website. I know you do a research review. I'll link to all of these things on the website, but if you can just tell everyone quickly. Yeah, it's alanaragon.com. That's my website. So, A-L-A-N-A-R-A-G-O-N.com. Uh, I've got a link to my research review on my website and I always like to kind of pat myself on the back for starting uh, this research review craze uh, 
Mm. Um, so uh, there are a bunch of good research reviews out there, but of course I'm, I'm biased towards my own <laughs> for <laughs> obvious reasons. Um, so, so yeah, that's where you can go to find my stuff. Yeah, well, I'll link to all of that. And uh, I know you, um, you're on all sorts of platforms on social media. Um, Brad, you're, you also have your own website. Um, how, how can people get hold of you? Yeah, my website is uh, lookgreatnaked.com. By the way, it's lookgreatnaked. I deal in superlatives. Look good naked apparently is, well, we won't go there as to what I've heard that is. Um, and I'm, I'm all over social media as well. Uh, basically, I just have Twitter and uh, Instagram, Facebook, very active. And I just say Google me. Brilliant. Yeah, well, like I said, I'll, I'll link uh, to all of those and obviously to uh, to the paper. Um, if um, I've referred to various podcasts where we've got into some of these more mechanistic areas and also um, at Guru Performance, we, we like to do a lot of uh, translational stuff. So we've, we've done info videos and infographics for some of these topics like NEAT and um, energy balance and various other things if, if uh, some of you want to understand some of those concepts in more detail. I've done podcasts with both these guys over the years. Um, please go check them out. They're still uh, relevant uh, as, as ever and um, hopefully there'll be more in the future. Um, so that brings us to the end of this podcast. Thank you very much, gents, for your valuable time. It's been a fascinating conversation and um, it's been a pleasure generally. Thank you so much, Laurent. My, my, my pleasure. Um, sorry, Brad? I said thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, so uh, for all of this stuff, just go to guruperformance.com where you can find out more episodes, more podcasts. I, of course, am Laurent Bannock and look forward to bringing another episode back to you very soon.